Hi, this is Judica Illis, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, the Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hey there, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a punk rock witch from Hollywood, California. I've had a lifelong passion for rock and roll and the occult that started when I was a preteen. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in L.A., And as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go, started producing shows, and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to write for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe to teach and perform dance. You might have also seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. Look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, go to my website, pleasantgaiman.com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcasts network of rock and roll shows. Everyone here at Pantheon tells stories about the music we just adore so much, each and every one with a different twist. Find them all wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. And head on over to PantheonPodcast.com to share a show with a friend. Or be damned to purgatory forever. Pleasant Gaiman, and today's episode features my guest Charlie Paulson. He's been a guitarist for the bands Goldfinger and Black President. He's acted in a number of motion pictures and television shows. Um, He's an animal activist. He calls himself a sometime writer, (laughs) and in his own words, He is a son of Los Angeles in the same way that I am a daughter of Los Angeles, even though I wasn't born here. Charlie, it's so good to see you. Thank you, PJ. Thank you for having me. So anyway, Charlie and I met at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Is that right? Is that the first time we met? I think that's where we met. No, 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 no. Um, I've been sort of a fan admirer of yours for years. So we've met many times that you probably wouldn't remember. 
we met through Vanessa Burgundy a number of times at burlesque shows and just at shows like gigs and just, uh, I remember I first became aware of you when I started reading Lottie Daw. Oh my God. That so was a I've, long time I ago. I met you in the nineties. I think, I think the first time I met you was, uh, at retail slot on Melrose. That totally makes sense. You guys retail slot was like, was like the be all and the end all of, um, early eighties, like quote, quote alternative, but, really punk rock <laughs> yeah. retail stores. And this was when Melrose still had shit like um not, you know, for years it's been sort of a fashion beacon in LA, but um this was when there was still like mom and pop dry cleaners and pet stores between like the couple of new wave stores that were there. It was just like Beverly basically. Yeah, Beverly Boulevard yeah. in Los Angeles, which is, you know, all, a lot of L.A. just used to look like some Midwestern town, except that there was like, you know, a lot more better people weather. in it. <laughs> yeah, better weather, better looking people and way more people <laughs> and way more traffic. Um, yeah, it didn't really, Melrose didn't really become what it was until like the mid 80s. I know, with Flip and then when it started having all the Posers other... and Vinyl Fetish. Yeah. I need to do an episode on vinyl fetish. But anyway. Yeah, have you ever had Joseph on the podcast? Joseph Brooks? No, I need to get him on there. That would be amazing. But let's talk about you for a few minutes before we talk about other people. <laughs> 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 or about uh, geographic locations. Um, so anyway, um, when when did you... when? You were you were born here, right? Yeah. So when did you actually start playing music? Uh and like what what scenes were you into aside from like early 90s where you because you're a little bit younger than me? Yeah, what uh I think like every white American male who was born in the 70s, I worshiped Kiss. Oh my god. And when the, I was, the most white American females like yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> when I was uh 6 or 7 years old, uh this my dad hired some teenage girl to come over and babysit me and she brought Kiss records and at that point <laughs> your life was over. <laughs> well, at that point I, you know, in my house uh we were always hearing Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and the Stones and so I grew up lo loving music. Um and I collected comic books. And then this 16-year-old girl who I had a crush on, of course, uh, shows up with this these records that were a combination of, like, superheroes with guitars, and it was over. So from Kiss, then it was ACDC and Van Halen and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I'm walking home from school one day in the sixth grade, and there's this dude sitting on his porch uh, with hair in his face, playing a white SG, and he's just shredding. And I just stood in front of his house and just watched him for like 10 minutes. And finally, he looks up at me, and, and he's laughing because this little kid watching him play, and he's like, you know, what's up, little dude? And I'm like, can you teach me to do that? And he said, sure. And he said, do you have a guitar? And I said, yes, and I lied. <laughs> and there was a bully in my neighborhood named Matt, and he was just an asshole. And... uh. I knew when he was going to be gone and I just walked into his house one day and took a guitar out of his room. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And that became my guitar. So then I started taking lessons from this dude. He was in like an eighties, this was probably 82, 83. And he was in one of those strip hair metal bands called Harlot. Oh, I remember Harlot. <laughs> yeah. And he taught me under my thumb by the stones and he taught me, you know, just basic shit, highway to hell and all that. 
And, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's when I started playing. Wow. That's amazing. So when was the first band that you were in? I had a band probably in junior high called Decibel and, uh, really creative name. I know. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of the early stuff, we were trying to be Van Halen or we were trying to be, you know, ACDC or whatever. And I, what I was aware of punk rock, but I, you know, it was like, you know, I was a little kid, so I had seen the Quincy episode. Oh, I was in that. Of course you were, <laughs> you know, and like, and, uh, what had happened was I lived in the Valley at the time. And there was this club called the country club, which I'm sure. Oh yeah. I was there all the time. And I, cause I lived really close to it. I figured out how to sneak into it through the back. So I used to ride my little mongoose bicycle down there and hide it behind the, the trash dumpster. And I would just sneak in and I would see shows. It didn't matter who was playing or I had this scam where back, remember BAM magazine? Yeah. I wrote for BAM. Oh, <laughs> of course. Well, Back then, there was no websites or anything. Bands would have hotlines. So you'd call the yep. number in the ad in BAM, and it was an answering machine. And I would call all these bands, and I'd say, hey, uh, you know, my name's Charlie. I go to, you know, Sutter Junior High, and, like, I will pass flyers out for you if I can come to your show. So somebody would always, I would get on my little bike, and somebody would meet me at, you know, uh, Licorice Pizza or or a Moby disc or something like that and give me a stack of flyers and I'd hand them out at school or wherever. And then they put me on the guest list. That's an amazing, that's really enterprising. Yeah. For your age. That's fucking fantastic. Um, so I went and saw this show one night. I didn't know who it was. I had no idea. And it was, and I snuck in like I usually did. Cause when you snuck in, you could, you would go right to the backstage area. Yeah. So I ran up the stairs and there was this little balcony that overlooked the stage and I would watch shows up there because nobody, no security would see me or bother me. And this band comes on stage and they look like the fucking Adams family. And they were so fucking cool. But it wasn't like anything I'd ever heard or seen. And so I wasn't sure really what I was, what to make of it. And I, as I'm watching this band, I feel this huge black presence behind me. I turn around and I look and it's fucking Nikki Six. Oh my God. Head to toe leather with his giant hair. And, uh, he had this pin on that said evil, mean, wicked, and nasty. And I'm like, that's cool. And he took his pin off and gave it to me. And this is, this is shout at the devil time. So Motley Crue was it. Wait, was Motley Crue playing or was it a different no, band? Was it 45 Graves? It was 45 fucking Graves. Of course grave. it was. And they were opening for the Circle Jerks. Oh my God. And I, and that was my first punk show. I think I was 13, maybe 14. What year was that? 83 it was shout of the devil had just come out and yeah. shout of the devil ruled my fucking my friend group like one kid had it because we were all pretty you know poor one kid had bought it and so we'd all go to his house and listen to it on his parents turntable and like shout of the devil was just was was everything so i turn around and here's fucking nick so i'm watching this band and i i dig it but i don't know what to make of it and nikki six is standing behind me and he's loving it so I'm like, okay, this must be cool. So then the jerks come on and I come to find out later, you know, through black president and, and just whatever, I had become friends with Hudson, Greg Hudson from the jerks. And he told me that, uh, Tommy and Nikki used to hang out with them all the time. Like they rehearsed right next to each other and they were friends. So Nikki was there because the jerks were playing. And it's funny how interconnected that whole world is, you know, all bands are friends. 
You know what I mean? I On know. some level. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. Or they fucking hate each other. But yeah, that was my introduction to, to live punk rock. And then, so I see the show and then I start seeing the girls at school with like fire engine red hair and shit. And I'm like, hey, I went and saw this show. Do you know this band? And they were like, yeah. And so, like most things, when you're that age, cute chicks will get you into anything, usually trouble. And these girls started making me mixtapes. You know what I mean? Then they'd bring them to school and it would have on there, there would be, you know, uh, TSOL or 45 Grey, but there'd also be Susie and Bauhaus and Throbbing Gristle. And that's how I got turned on to this whole world outside of rock and roll. That's amazing. That's so good. Yeah. Um, I feel like we should listen to some 45 Grave right Hell now. Hell yeah. This is Party Time by 45 Grave. Charlie Paulson, and we're talking about his early years and death rock. It used to be called death rock before it was goth. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It, it, actually, it wasn't even, I, I don't even remember when it started turning into goth. It was much later than the 80s. I think it was like probably like either the late 80s or the early 90s. But so um, then when was your, when was your um, first, first band though that you... It was that band Decibel, but I mean, I mean, like, did you like when you started being not out, like a young a, kid? It was a, it was this band called Squirm, and we used to play the old Shamrock, and we used to play. Oh my out. god, it was the bartender there. Of course, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so yeah, and we you, we you met could, you, way we, before the nineties. You you could just you could just say like when we went to Berlin, and I'd say, oh, I was there. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me. And I remember... Um, yeah, Iris and I, Iris Barry and I were the bartenders at the Shamrock. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but we play the Shamrock, we play Al's Bar, we play the Anti-Club. Yeah. We were, I mean, basically, we were like a cross between the Misfits and Black Flag. It wasn't revolutionary or anything. And then I just kind of, you know, bounced around from, you know, in a bunch of different bands and... um and then I uh, got a gig gar guitar teching for this band called Godflesh, who were opening for Danzig, and it was a fucking nightmare. These guys were it was it was rough, and I wound up getting fired after two weeks. And I knew John Feldman, the singer of Goldfinger, for for years at this point, and I knew that he had a band together, and I knew that he he has an insane work ethic, and I knew that the guitar player. Uh, had overdosed and was in the hospital. So as soon and so I'm watching this band play every night, and it's driving me crazy because I just want to get out and fucking play. So as soon as I get home, I call Feldy and I'm like, "Look, dude, I know you probably got some shows booked, and I know Steve's in treatment. I'll fill in for him until he gets out." And uh, so I had to learn like twenty something songs in one day. Go to rehearsal with no bass player because he was he had the the flu or something. 
Um, and then we played two shows the next night. We played the Dragonfly, uh, broke our gear down, threw it in the drummer's truck, and drove up to what was Hell's Gate at the time, and then played another show. And by the end of the second show, the, our bass player had to go to the emergency room because he had like 104 temperature. So that was it. That was my trial by fire, and that's how I got into Goldfinger. So was th- was this like 93 or 90- 94? 93, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought, 93. Wow. So then, and then, um, then you just were in Goldfinger for a while and then out of it and in it again, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've quit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, John and I are both very stubborn and hard-headed and, um, and, uh, you know, sometimes we just need, I need a break and that's, you know, it's just, it's what it is. You know what I mean? I mean. I love the dude and he is my big brother and he, that will always be the way it is, but we don't see things, uh, we don't see it eye to eye often. And, you know, but I'm at a point in an age now where like Goldfinger's my job. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, and it's a great job and you know, I love playing shows and I love seeing the people that have supported us for so long. So I don't take it as seriously anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you take it seriously. I take it seriously, but, but not, not to the point yeah. where it gets under my skin. Like, if we argue about a set list, I'm not going to lo- flip out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, because it gets to be like, you, you know, you know each other's person. It, I mean, I always think that bands are like families. Yeah. Like, they can have they can have the good family dynamic or the dysfunctional family dynamic. or. So, check it out. Y- yes, and I can attest to that from years of experience being in bands. But I'll also tell you this. One day, uh, or at some point a couple of years ago, I was just watching a bunch of documentaries. And I watched the Bad Brains documentary. Uh-huh. I watched that Eagles documentary. It was like a three-parter, I think. I watched the Foo Fighters documentary and um, the Go-Go's documentary. And all within the span of a week. And these are four very different bands that have achieved very different levels of success, that play very different kind of music, but they're all exactly the same. Every band is the same. They all have the same type of personalities. They all have the same arguments and drama. And, you know, it, it, it just is what it is. It doesn't matter what kind of music you play or how successful you are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also, like, I, I've talked with different people about, like, how if you if you had someone in a band or if you were, you know, or or someone left your band or something, and then you you had a hit or started getting um, some fame and notoriety. Then always those people will come out of the woodwork and like say, "Well, I co-wrote that song because I happened to be like late to rehearsal the day that you were already working on it." Yeah, or whatever. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my band, The Screaming Sirens, was um, we were pretty good. I mean, I think maybe also because it was all women. Uh, we were we were very in tune with each other. Um, aside from the fact that, like, since we were all women, our periods all wound up at the same time, which was, which was horrifying. Because if if we were working with a nasty promoter and it was that time of the month for the five of us, watch the fuck out. Oh yeah, I wouldn't want to tangle with that. Um, no, that was that was fucking gnarly. But um, we would we would have like we had we had ground rules in the band, and most of them were were pretty good. A couple were unspoken. Like one was that. If someone had, if someone had like, if someone was going to be on mushrooms or speed or whatever drug it was, because this was a given in those days, sure. you guys, this was like the eighties. 
that they had to provide enough of whatever substance it was for the rest of the band. Because so everybody could be on the same level. Yeah. So we, yeah. So we could play as a cohesive unit because it, it won't work. Like if the drummer is on speed and then like oh, yeah. the singer and the guitarist are hallucinating on mushroom. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which um, one time. Uh, then you're queens of the Stone Age. <laughs> yeah. It, or, or queens of something. Um, one time I remember like um, we were playing in Sacramento and my bass player was making like horrendous like mistakes like just big clunkers you know what I mean and I looked over like just sort of a sidelong glance to see what the fuck was going on with her and she had like a million sticks and twigs of mushrooms coming out of her mouth because some guy had like jumped up on stage and, and just, just dosed her she, yeah well she opened her mouth well, willingly yeah. but she had all these like stems of mushrooms and she was trying to chew it and she she looked like a cartoon like that was about to get sick because she had like literally her whole mouth was like loaded with mushrooms the way that like a squirrel would have like extra nuts in its pouches and she was trying to not waste it so she was really fucking up on the base that's fucking amazing yeah um yeah but so many i know so many bands have the same kind of of uh problems or assets or, or stuff you know which is which is good. I mean, because they are like families. If you're not in a band, like, you don't really understand that. I mean, some people, like maybe a bar band or people that have just, you know, that do covers for like corporate casual. events. It's yeah. just casual. But if you're really involved in the art of it, it's like, you know. It takes a certain kind of personality to want to. Being in a band, especially when we came up, was... It was fucking hard. Yeah, I mean, and do like van tours. I mean, nobody knows how hard that was. Yeah. And back in the day, if you wanted somebody to come out to your show, you had to go to Kinko's, print up a, hundreds of fucking flyers, and go. And th the constant rejection of trying to hand your flyer to somebody and them not caring. And I, I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want that shit either. Um, you know, and sleeping on people's floors and like. Oh yeah. I mean. It's 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 not for everybody. So the type of personality that it takes to devote your life to that, it's it's very specific. It's like one one step or a few steps short of Van Gogh, except in cut, yeah. instead of cutting your ear off, no, you, you, just you like lose your hearing in one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but it's like, yeah, it's a lot of sacrifices, and I think in those days too, like people that are younger um, that are listening, like. You know, I, I say this a lot on every podcast, but you have to imagine a world where there was no cell phones. Everything was like a map, like a paper map if you yeah. were going on tour and you had to call people on landlines to um to reach them. And if they weren't there, maybe they couldn't afford an answering machine because they were really expensive. Yeah. And that everything was so different. It was so analog. I always uh, people sometimes ask me, like, how at 63 I'm so on top of social media and my stock answer is um, beats the fuck out of wandering up and down Sunset Strip for four or five hours handing out flyers. Dude, you remember the worst when like you couldn't get anybody on the phone so you would just like walk or skate or maybe take the bus to, to their house. Well, not only that or to the spot that everybody hung out. Yes. You know what I mean? And there was nobody there and for hours you're just like, well, where the fuck where did is they everybody? Go? Yeah. I know. Those days, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do that now. But now you have this whole other feeling of, like, I feel bad for kids growing up with social media, man, because 
the level of 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 insecure it's such a trigger for insecurity and 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 isolation and loneliness if you don't you know what i mean like a friend of mine has kids and he was telling me that they're a little there there's like this whole language and politics on social media that we're not aware of as adults where if somebody likes your post or if they don't like your post or if they leave a certain comment or you mean as older adults <laughs> yeah yeah well as older kids um and like it, it can ruin a kid's week if you know depending on how their post is is received or neglected or whatever you know i mean i just I, I'm glad I didn't grow up in that era. But do you remember slam books? Did you have slam oh, books? Yeah. Oh, Let yeah. me explain this to the audience. So slam books for you youngins out there was kind of like social media. You'd get like this little like spiral notebook and it would um you'd write someone's name or something on it and then it would get handed all around, not just your class, but from class to class or through the lunchroom or whatever in school, and everyone could just write comments about it like cute or she's popular or total dog or yeah. like fuck you you know what i mean yeah. and so it would eventually like come back to you but some of the comments were just fucking brutal so savage so, kids so, are fucking savage man yeah but this was like a it was like a ballpoint pen yeah. of like hard copy paper spiral notebook of social media only there was no pictures in because none of us could afford even the disposable cameras in those days. And yeah. also this had been going on probably since like the thirties or something. Yeah. And everyone knew what a slam book was. And like someone would hand it to you, even if you were sitting next to or behind or in front of someone that you didn't like, they would still give you the slam book. So, you, you know, cause it was like everyone did it just yeah. like social media. Wow. Slam books. I, I was really good at them. I yeah. made slam books. That's why I think I was so good at making a fanzine. Cause it was like my own slam book that nobody else could write in unless Speaking I wanted them which, to. <laughs> You promised me a copy of Lobotomy at some point. I know. I didn't make them yet okay. because it's a long pandemic story. Yeah. Um, but well, at, at some point. Yeah. But I really want to read that. I would kill to get my hands on some original copies of the first three slash magazines. Oh, my God. I know. Do you have any of them? I have them somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I have them because I, I still remember the first slash magazine one that i saw was the it was the very first issue we went to a slash magazine party at the ramada inn in yes. santa monica and i don't even know how we heard about it but we were already doing lobotomy and as soon as we saw that it was an actual newspaper and not like a xerox thing like i just um immediately hit them up and started writing for it like the next issue steve right yeah steve and steve samioff and melanie nissen and then um <clears throat> Excuse me. Hashtag old man on the Sopranos. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, let's take a break and we'll come right back. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And now I'm back. And so is Charlie so yeah, my first my first couple of interviews in there. The first one was with Lance Loud and the Mumps, which was the first interview I had ever done. And then the second one was with the Germs. But I was really mad because they, they didn't give you credit. Yeah, they never credited whoever was doing the interviews. And this was, you know, this was, I felt like this was my debut into punk rock journalism, you know. But then yeah, right around the um right after that, I was started writing my col- column at LA Weekly, and I always got bylines, but. I still I still resent Slash Magazine for that. Although, my God, what a great fucking thing! Yeah, it was. I, everybody knows. Everybody Everything knows was, it was so you. good. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, is this the part where I get to take over and turn the tables and interview you? I think we should talk a little bit more about you, and then we'll take a break, and you can interview me. Charlie wants okay. to interview me, not I've like been you wanting guys to do this for years. <laughs> so I'm I'm humoring him, but like you know, I always talk about myself pretty often on the podcast um and like i don't know i mean i just feel i don't feel uncomfortable about it but it's it's going to be funny so let's start let's let's go back to you charlie for a little bit more tell tell um tell everyone about some of your acting and then i want to know if you have had any kind of paranormal experiences while you were on the road or anything okay uh you can start with whatever you want acting so i got into that Totally by accident. I was out in front of a show. I think it was at the Troubadour. And uh, these two kids come up with like a, uh, uh, what do they, uh, what do they call it? The, the, a clipboard. Uh-huh. And they're like, hey. And they were intimidated. You could tell. It was some punk rock show. I don't know. I don't remember what it was. I, it might have been uh, seven seconds or something. I don't remember. But 
and they're like, hey, we're uh, we're casting a movie and we're looking for a bunch of punks and skinheads and and everybody was like kind of ignoring them and they're like it's 70 dollars a day and we feed you and we're like oh <laughs> and and uh so i signed up for it wait what year was this uh 91 maybe 92 um and so i signed up for it and a couple days later i was at the studio in culver city and uh and, you know, I was, it was a, a movie called Skins, and it was just a, a really awful B-movie about skinheads. Right. And um, I remember that movie. Yeah, and they, they later changed the name to Gang Boys, and thank God you can't find it anywhere. But, Gang Boys. But, you know, of course, I had to play a Nazi. And then the director just took a liking to me, and he wound up putting me in more and more scenes and giving me lines. And so I got, that's how I got my SAG card. Oh yeah, and I loved the experience so much that even when I wasn't shooting, I would go down and just help. I would help with anything, like I would move lights. I mean, it's union, but it wasn't union, so otherwise I would couldn't have done this. But I would help with craft services, anything. I just loved the whole process of filmmaking so much that I just wanted to be there every day. And then uh, out of that, I wound up, uh, like I said, I, I wound up getting my union card, and then I went. But I didn't really know how to pursue it or anything, and I, I didn't care that much. And then a friend of mine who's like this, you know, handsome surfer-looking guy who's an actor, uh, I gave him a ride to his agency one day, and uh, and I go in with him. I'm just sitting in the waiting room while he's talking to his agent. She comes out, or he comes out, and he's like, hey, come in here. And she saw me, and she wanted to talk to me. And she's like, are you an actor? Do you have representation? Based on just having a shaved head and tattoos or whatever. And so she wound up representing me, and then I wound up, you know, this didn't all happen at once, but over years I wound up, you know, I'm always a criminal, I'm, I'm and always a Nazi. So I'm either, so I'm a skinhead, a bank robber, a skinhead, a kidnapper, a skinhead, a car thief. Do you know what I mean? It's always in It's like I'm always a groupie, a yeah, hooker, yeah. a cult member, yeah. a groupie, a hooker, a cult member. Yeah, except for, what was that film? Uh, uh, I, I took the screenshot of it one day and I, I sent it to you. Um, you're in, uh, I think you're in Playmates on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, oh, yeah, that was the, I mean, I co-wrote that movie. Yeah. I was a punk rocker. You had a fully developed character. like Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that was great. I, I co-wrote that, that movie. That was the running kind for anybody. Right. I'm going to tell you guys this, that movie and Thrashin', which I was also in, I say this on social media all the time, but both movies are on YouTube in their entirety for free. They're not even a pay thing. Just you can watch the whole mo movie of Thrashin', which is a skateboarding movie, um, or The Running Kind, which is um, a movie I co-wrote with Max Tash that only ever came out on VHS. Great movies, both of them. Yeah, they're they're perfect '80s movies. Um, so that was that, and then um, I. I wound up being in a movie called uh, Toolbox Murders, which was directed by Toby Hooper of oh, cool. Texas Chainsaw, Poltergeist, all that. Yeah, that's amazing. That was fucking awesome. I actually, the part I got was originally written for Glenn Danzig. Uh -huh. but apparently, he was too short. No, I'm he just, just could <laughs> not act or uh, something happened where they were in a panic to fill the role and I wound up getting it last minute and that was a great experience. That's amazing. Yeah. That's um, really good. And then have you done any acting lately? 
not lately. I've been thinking Wait, about. There's a, I just have to tell the audience. There's a, one of Charlie's dogs is licking the microphone right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is definitely the doghouse. I asked Pleasant before she came over. I'm like, because I know she loves cats. I'm like, you're cool with dogs, right? Because there's a lot of them in my house. It was within two seconds. I had paw prints on my skirt. And yeah. I liked it. <laughs> so, yeah, I haven't done any acting lately, but I would love to get back into it. Well, maybe you will now that everything's back in production. Yeah. Okay, so tell me, do you have any good paranormal stories, like either on the road touring or anything that's happened to you that's been weird or paranormally? Because me and the whole audience are dying to know. I I hate to be a buzzkill, but I've never had a paranormal experience, and I'm a hard, hardcore skeptic atheist. <laughs> um, I love... The symbolism, and I love the, 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 like, when I came to your show the other night and they did the ritual, I love that. And it's, I, because I think occult imagery and, and all those things are just cool and badass. But I, I, like I said, I'm a hardcore cynic and I, I believe in the here and now. And, um, but I love that it exists. And a lot of my friends are deeply involved in, uh, the practice. And, you know, bless them, so to speak. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, I've just never had any remote. I mean, I was an altar boy when I was a kid. Wow. So, so many boys that I know were altar boys. And maybe that, maybe that laid the foundation. I didn't get molested or anything, but it was, it was awful. And just what, growing was it, up were you Catholic, a Catholic yeah. altar boy. Yeah. See, I know so many guys that went Catholic and I find out like after I've known them for ages that every one of them was a, an altar boy, but that kind of like in a, in a sick, um, Pope like way yeah. turns me on. <laughs> That's the day I became anti Pope. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a break now and then um and we'll be we'll be right back with Charlie Paulson and I. We're back with my guest, the wondrous Charlie Paulson. And um, he, he says he wants to interview me, don't you, Charlie? I do. Okay, so just the thing, my favorite period of time in my favorite place is the 70s in Hollywood. Okay. Okay. And you, like I said earlier in the car, you're, you're like a Zelig figure. Like <laughs> you were everywhere. Um, okay. So around that time in LA, you had glitter rock and glam with Rodney's English disco, which morphed sort of organically into punk rock. Um, there was the fucking hillside strangler. Oh my God. That was, that was actually a weirdly large part of the, the punk scene. It, it, because it, it's mentioned as an afterthought. 
Now, what you mean? Well, I mean, obviously, I was there, whenever I read books or hear interviews, it'll be like, oh, and then, you know, some girl came out of the mask one night. We're pretty sure that. No, no, she did. It was it was Jane. It was um, Rick Wilder's girlfriend. Yeah. From from Rick Wilder from the Mama. Yeah. And um, like after that, we were. I mean, to describe how the Hillside Strangler was in L.A. at that time, it was terrifying. I mean, the, and then the, the Night Stalker right after it. I mean, there's you know there's been documentaries on both, and I I watched that. The Richard Ramirez. It's terrible. Night Stalker the, Hillside, docu- the Hillside Strangler one's okay, but the Ramirez one is. Yeah, but still, it's hard to describe how scary it was in those days. With again the the same parameters, like there was no social media, there was only landlines. There was like, yeah. you know, like if you wanted to call the police, you couldn't just press nine one one on your phone. You yeah. had to like, you know, either pick up the landline and. For anyone that's never used the landline before they went digital, which was way late in landlineville, uh, you know, that that little wheel in Rotary the middle, dial. if you dialed O for operator, it took a long time for it to spin back yeah. into place, you know, so you could you could be just dead or abducted <laughs> by the time you dialed 911. When's the last time you called 911? Because I had to call them fairly recently. And even now in the age of digital, you're still on hold for 20 minutes. Oh, my God, it's worse. It used to at least they used to pick up more. I, I've, I've called 911 a few times. I, I I've had. I've had some um, very 911 episodes. One time at my house, um, there was six different people calling 911 over the course of an hour and a half, and nobody ever came. Thanks, LAPD. Oh, yeah, that's common. Yeah. Uh, yeah, here, to be clear, I never, ever call cops, but I saw an accident and I called an ambulance. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I called actually the time before that, I, I saw a really gnarly accident and I called it. Yeah. And you still you're on hold. Okay, so the Hillside Strangler, the the the, the it that was a uh, a heavy fucking presence. It was, and and I mean everyone was suddenly. This was like you know this was one of the moments of like loss of innocence or whatever in the punk scene because Hollywood in those days was pretty much deserted. I know this is going to sound odd to some people, but the urban renewal hadn't begun, and it was just like. It was like a, a sleepy Midwestern town where it was safe enough to sleep with your windows open, but there was like Grauman's Chinese around the corner or yeah. Fredericks of Hollywood right there. And suddenly no one could have their windows open and nowhere was air conditioned in those days. You yeah. know what I mean? But it wasn't dumb to have your windows open. And also all of us were, were prowling around, walking around the streets all the time because none of us had fucking cars. Yeah. I mean, in the rock and roll scene anyway. And, um, and so, like, it got it got scary, especially with women. Like, like w- you know, I think most of the women in the punk scene in those days had just been, oh, yeah, no, I can get home on my own. And, I mean, lots of us were like, I mean, I can't even count how many times I would stumble home barefoot because my spike heels were hurting me after doing the pogo all night, you know. And it was, sa- I mean, also, I mean, that's, like, crazy enough, too, because it was safe and clean enough on Hollywood sidewalks to walk home barefoot. You that's went- unbelievable. No, I know. It's unbelievable. There was no needles. There was no heroin problems yet. That You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the worst thing was you'd step in some gum someone had spit out or possibly <laughs> dog shit. You know what I mean? Or a- it would have cost you on the way out of a movie with oh. Carlisle. <laughs> I can't believe it. that was a dwarf. That was yeah. <laughs> that was different. That was that was also one of the kind of things that only happen. So between the ages of seventeen acid. and oh, that's right, you were on out. Jesus Christ. So between seventeen, nineteen, twenty, maybe, I was a street kid and I lived in squats off a of Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Or I slept on rooftops or whatever, and there was 
you know, you knew other kids. I was a total tweaker at the time. And basically everybody that lived on the streets was. And you would have like this this language. We we would communicate to each other through whistles, like if cops were coming yeah, or yeah, if yeah. you were looking for something or whatever. And on Hollywood and Wilcox, there was this all-night burger place called Tommy Burgers. Oh, yeah, Tommy Tommy yeah. Burgers. Not to be confused with the original Tommy's, yeah, just because everyone was called Tommy shady. Burgers because Tommy's was so so successful. Yeah, and you would just hang out there all night if you had nowhere else to go. And But it was, you were, like you were saying, completely fucking vulnerable. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. people, people that we knew from squats and from, because I ran with a couple Tiger crews back then too, would just disappear. I know. And also in those days, like everyone had knives too. There was no oh, yeah. automatic yes. weapons for gangs, but there was, there was like, there was R13, the gang on Hollywood Boulevard and around Hollywood, like yeah. the rebels and they all had knives and they really had West Side Story knife fights. But oh, yeah. you could also just get stabbed in the back yeah. like, by a lot of people, yeah. you know, it was, it was, I mean, it was different, but you would, you could still bleed out and die depending on where you got stabbed but the hillside strangler i mean suddenly like girls were all walking in groups or guys were walking girls home and i got uh, speaking of knives i got um i can't remember if i was just really drunk i can't remember why i got stopped by cops but there was um a, a female cop which was kind of rare in those days and a guy cop and the female was frisking me and she found this big stiletto i had that i got in, in tijuana and it was a good one and i still have it it had a pink pearl handle. They let you keep it. They, I'll tell you why they let me keep it. Because they were like, why do you have a knife? Are you in a gang? And they were they were like grilling me. And I was, I have a knife because Hillside Strangler. Yeah. And that, and then the girl just like looked at the guy and they were like, okay. Yeah. And they just let me go and they figured out I wasn't in a gang. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I mean, that's, that, and that wasn't negligent policing then. The, the Hillside Strangler terrified the entire city. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I swear to God, one time I saw a body near the side of the freeway, and I think it was a hillside strangler victim. I mean, I they would, that's where they would dump them. I know, I know. Yeah, that was that was that was fucking bizarre. Okay, all right, but back. To so it. let let me bring the mood up a little bit. Why? So, no, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so also around this time, I mean, uh, movies were in a wild period of reinvention you know we'd had easy rider and and you know there's a sort of outlaw filmmaking and then star wars comes out and changes fucking everything yeah the comedy store was maybe at its apex of i mean there was carrie came out around that time too and that changed everything yeah oh yeah uh and you know you could you could stumble into the comedy store and see richard fucking Pryor and carlin and letterman and like yeah just Hollywood in that period to me was the coolest, was the apex of, of culture to me. Do you know what I mean? Like you could literally go and see Richard Pryor do a set and then drive up to Hollywood Boulevard and see the Go-Go's or the Germs in a basement. Like it did not get cooler than that. Yeah. You told me you used to hang out with Luke Skywalker at the Zero Club. At the Zero and then at the Starwood. Yeah. The Starwood was a great club, you guys. It was this big, giant, huge club um, that was run by um, or owned by Eddie Nash. um, Oh, yeah. Of the the Laurel Canyon murders. Yeah, obsessed with that, too. I've been to the house. I've been to the apartment building where the murders happened. Like, 
Um, I know we're sick. Me and my friend Brad Dunning used to go and drink up in the, uh, in the driveway of Cielo Drive at Sharon Tate's before oh, yeah. we went to the whiskey. Before they tore it down. Yeah, we were fucked up. We were all fucked yeah. up. There's yeah, a reason I live right why the, all the punk people know each other. I live right around the corner from where the Tate LaBianca murders happen. I take people up there all the oh, time. Oh, I, I know. Or not, you, not Tate, the, the LaBianca murders. The LaBianca. I know. I used, to, I used to go to that Trader Joe's because it was it used to be the hub that Lena LaBianca owned, the Silver Lake Trader Joe's. Really? Yeah, it was the hub market. Oh, that's market. right. They were grocers. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Okay, so do you have... Okay, wait. Now you guys all know how fucking sick and twisted Charlie and I are. After I saw the movie Wonderland, I drove up to the address and somebody had just moved out and they had left some furniture out there and there were two nightstands. And I know that they were not there during the murder, but because they came out of that apartment, I took those and I had those those were my nightstands for years because they were in that apartment. Wow. Okay. Did you did you ever go to the comedy store? Did you ever? uh... I went to the comedy store a few times in those days because Louis Lista the singer of the Sheiks of Shake, who was an that was they were an incredible band. I've they, never even heard of them. They were older. I know nobody has. They're unsung heroes. They were older guys, meaning probably they were in their like early thirties, maybe. <laughs> but I thought they were old men. But they did this crazy, amazing sort of like weird blues stuff that that wasn't blues. It yeah. wasn't straight blues, and it wasn't punk rock. And the the lyrics um were so twisted. And um, like Paul Bodie, their drummer is still around, but I'm not sure how many of the others. Um, the, the guy that wrote most of the lyrics was a poet whose name was Miles Saletti, and they they were just incredible. They played with a bunch of punk rock bands, but they weren't punk rock. They made a few recordings, and um, anyway, Louis Lister was like I think the Mater D at the Comedy Store, and he used to he walked around all the time with this fucking puppet. It was always with him, and he wound up giving it to me. And like, they played after at years. the comedy store. No, he was the MC or, oh. or the 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 Mater D. I'm sorry, okay. at the comedy store. So I'd been there then. If you guys are hearing jingling sounds in the background, it's because Charlie has five dogs here. Yeah. So we're not going to edit Those out that sound because someone tags. just shook their shook their dog tags. But anyway, yeah. So so there, but there was celebrities or soon to be celebrities hanging out. Everywhere. Did um, you get to see Pryor? Did you get to see Carlin? I don't remember if I saw them or not because I was I was sort of into comedy, but I wasn't that much into comedy. Right. Like, um, you know, I, I you could go almost anywhere in Hollywood and see like great people that were destined to be famous, whether it was musicians or comedians. And then there was some people who were already famous, but that you guys nowadays today wouldn't know about, like like Pat Collins, the hip hypnotist, yes, who had her own whole building on Sunset, and um, it was right across the street from Eddie's Little Shanghai, which was a really classic movie land restaurant, but is now I think an Arco or or a fast food place. Right, it's just west of um, San Vicente. It's between San Vicente and but Pat Collins, the hip hypnotist, looked like a sort of wondrous middle-aged version of Zsa or Ava Gabor. She had like a snow white giant bouffant and she wore these like flowing white I remember robes. her. I don't know how, but and, did she ever have commercials? Yeah, or? she had commercials. Okay, so yeah. And she would she would hypnotize people, but she was she was kind of like Endora from Bewitched Perfect. crossed with like um Zsa or Ava Gabor. She was she was she was genius. Um well then there was the Tropicana where Ricky Lee Jones and Tom Waits lived. 
They lived, And yeah. the damned would, you know, every band in town would Blondie stay there. Blondie stayed there. Everybody. The and stayed and there. Jack Nicholson would have breakfast there all the time. Everybody. Like, and you could just, that was just a, or Duke's coffee shop. Yeah, I was Barry, my publisher, and my longtime Disgraceland roommate. Um, yeah. She worked at Duke. She knew everybody. And also, for you guys that didn't, exp- there's a Duke's on Sunset. I'm not sure if it closed since no, the it's pandemic. Not there anymore. But yeah, but that wasn't the original Dukes. The original Dukes was at the Tropicana, and they had quote quote family style seating, which meant that you just had to sit at these long tables and fill in whatever space. So you could really be next to a famous movie star or someone like Joni Mitchell or Bono from you know U2 or whoever. Yeah. The fuck you know. And now that- it's a shitty Ramada, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. God, that broke my heart. They tore it down I in '87. But anyhow, so at the Tropicana, Teresa Caricas, um, the photographer who does, you know, did the lobotomy fanzine with me, I would usually call up the Tropicana and we knew the guys that owned it. And I would just go, hey, who's in town? And they'd tell me like what band was in town, you know, and tell me the, the room number. And that I would just go and bang on the doors and say, hi, this is pleasant. Um I have a fanzine called Lobotomy. Do you want to get drunk with me and go thrift store shopping and do an interview? And everyone would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not for nothing pleasant, but you're pretty hot. So if I'm like guy in town for a couple of days and it's L.A. and I don't know anybody and you knock on my hotel room <laughs> door and you're like, do you want to hang out? Me and my whole band are going to say, yeah. Um, what strikes me about. Like I was six years old when this was happening, so I wasn't there, but. Everything I've read, all the conversations I've had, uh, all the podcast interviews I've, I've listened to, there was there something that was missing from that scene that is around today is there there were people, I mean, you had, you know, the kids from the East L.A. bands, like, you know, the Stains and the Brat, and then you had... Uh, yeah, you the know. Brat and the Undertakers. Yeah. All of, there was a great East L.A., um, we used to call it in those days, everyone called it Chicano, and then it turned into Latino. Yeah. And now it's Latinx. But you, you have know, those but- kids mixing with Tomata, who was ostensibly a drag queen. Tomata Duplenty from the Screamers. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know. Uh, and with Joan Jett just hanging out, because this was before the rent, when he's got famous. Yeah. I mean, all these early pictures, I've got to say, uh, from of uh like Joan um usually came from Chris Stein when Blondie first came to LA they were staying at the Tropicana of course like everybody and he took Chris took shit tons of photos of like Jeffrey Lee Pierce and Joan Jett and then me and Randy and um whoever else was hanging out because Blondie was new enough as a band to have you know this was like their first like maybe out of across the country tour right. and stuff. For anybody who doesn't know, one of the reasons that I, this, this era, one of the millions of reasons this era was the greatest was Ramones come to town and Blondie's opening for them at the Whiskey. For a whole week. For a fucking week you could go see Blondie two and the Ramones. Two shows Dude, God. Yeah. So my question is this. That was you in have this whole cross-section yeah. of, of, of cultures and people in punk rock but everybody seemed to get along. Like there weren't, aside from maybe Black Randy and definitely Kim Fowley, there didn't seem to be any pariahs. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of drama or infighting. I mean, maybe, you know, people have gotten gentler over the over the years, but like it seems like everybody kind of got along and, you know, 
There wasn't that much there drama. There weren't any I mean, monster. I mean, there was there was like a little bit of drama all the time. Because sure. hello, how can there not be? But um, and then as a pariah, Kim Fowley wasn't really a pariah, but some of us didn't like him because he was, you know, because he was a fucking creep. Well, he was creepy, yes, but he was also like he would just um. Him and Rodney and Harvey Kubernick, like who I've worked with a lot, and he's a music historian and a record producer and stuff, they all had their own language, which was kind of cool. It was their own secret slang, and a few other people spoke it too. Like like Pamela DeBar would know all of it. Yeah. Like they would have certain phrases, like if they liked something, it would be Godhead. Or they'd, you know, if yeah. they didn't like something, they'd be like down on a dog level. <laughs> they, 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 but they all, they all talk like that. And then Black Randy wasn't really a pariah. Everyone liked him, but he would get so loaded, he would do insane things that like, you just have to go, whoa, it's Black Randy. I mean, he, he never did anything like really, truly fucked up or hurt other people, okay. I don't think. But like, he would just, he would do something that no one could believe, like in the middle of a crowd. Just yeah, like, like this dude outfit. would just like be in a party and just drop his pants and shit in the middle of the floor. At least those are the stories. You know what I mean? Yeah, or like one time in the in the middle of a giant screamers party, he dumped an entire pot of spaghetti sauce over his head and wound up running down like these steep back steps with the pot still on his head and it flew off somewhere in the yard and then ran all the way down to to Ginger House. So like everybody it. got along But El Duce well. from the mentor oh, shit in yeah. El Duce and that was later punk, but El Duce sh- shit on purpose in people's purses. I don't think that <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, I know. <laughs> I know, trust me. I don't I've hung know out if with Black El Duce. Randy on purpose shit like really in the middle of a floor or if that's an urban legend. I didn't see it. I did hear about it, but I know for a fact that if someone left their purse unattended, um, if someone left their purse unattended, um, El Duce would really shit in it. So what did you want to ask me? Charlie's still interviewing me. Okay, so there's like this cross-section in the early 80s of like punk is still around, although it's kind of taken a different form. You started hanging out with rockabilly bands and going to shows and and but also new wave was happening and also hair metal was happening what did that look like when that when all these things started converging like i know you and belinda saw motley crew a couple times in the early days she, <laughs> yeah, she yeah. talks about that in her book yeah we uh, okay well i mean first i have to explain to everybody and i've explained this before on this podcast but there's always you know a first time for new listeners in those days, there was unbelievable bills. And when I say unbelievable, I mean, we're talking about three bands playing together who later became world famous or gold record famous or whatever. Right. And um, but they seem to come from very disparate, you know, types of music, you know, like like Berlin opening for Van Halen is like a really good example I can give. Did him. you see Van Halen back in the day? Oh, fuck at yeah. The Starwood? All the time. At Did the you Starwood know? at Oscars, which was at Oscos, which was uh yeah. A club and at the whiskey. I mean, also, I was a ticket taker at the whiskey. So, so at, at any time that they were there, I was seeing them. And because they were so house bandy at the whiskey, also. You didn't pay attention. No, 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 no. I mean, No, but like they would play the, the Van Halen record all the time. Okay. And when I say record, it was really a record, not even a cassette, like, yeah. you know, for between bands or, yeah. or while the place was filling up. But, um, did you have any inkling that they were going to be what they were, or were they just another fucking rock band from Pasadena? They weren't. Well, I didn't know about another rock band from because I I didn't know about other bands yet from Pasadena, but they were fucking great. They, okay. They weren't. 
entirely my taste, but they were unbelievable. And like David Lee Roth had so much energy and was so incredible as a front person. It was, it was, you, I mean, you all get in those days, you could always feel the energy in the room of anything. And it was always very intense, but this was just like, it was electric. It was, it was a, it was a good combo. And by combo, I don't mean band. I mean, it was one of those things like how we were just talking about bands that have chemistry. Yeah. And they had mega chemistry, but, um, so in those days there wasn't even the term alternative music. And I say this on every podcast. So any band that was quote, quote, weird, meaning not like a bar band or a cover band or something, or, you know, like it was bands that would later be called indie bands if they hadn't already been signed at that point, you know, mm-hmm. but they would just play together because it made sense or because each one of them had kind of their own small following, but whoever was like an astute club booker would book them because be like, Oh, like these people will bring in this crowd and these people will bring in a slightly older people that will drink more. And that way we'll have a sellout show or so, you know what I mean? But everyone was friends with each other too. Cause the, scene was so small so that's why you would get bizarre bizarre bills like that you know like like bands that would when there was classifications coming down we we never classified shit but someone else would say oh that band is power pop or oh that band is new wave or that band is punk or right you know but so the but the real um dividing line i thought was long hair Yes. And not even long hair because, well, long hair was kind of like hippies, but also there was a lot of hippies coming to fucking punk shows because they were used to alternative craziness and they liked the same drugs we did. And they didn't care if it was if they were watching The Grateful Dead or The Damned, as long as they could dance to it, they didn't care. You know what I mean? But um, when hair metal started coming in, that took over. And there was so many of them because somehow the word went out on the hair metal hotline or (laughs) (laughs) no, I mean, it was like in in the thirties and the forties, people flocked to Hollywood to become stars. So suddenly Hollywood was a rock and roll Mecca. So every fucking man from like Pittsburgh or Tulsa or whatever was like borrowing their girlfriend's lipstick and putting on like tight pants, even though they probably did not have the body for it. Yeah. Sorry, I sound like a sexist, but fuck yes, I <laughs> yeah. am. Because yeah. some of those dudes did not look fuckable. Um, <laughs> but like there was a few, like like Poison was a perfect example of how beautiful and amazing you could be. And they were fun. And like my band, The Sirens, played with them. The Screaming Sirens, we played with them all the time. Oh, really? Oh, constantly. We were label mates and our oh, records okay. came out right around the same time. You on Enigma? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, like, so, um, but so Poison looked great as a lipstick and eyeshadow wearing sort of hair metal band. And there was a couple of others that were pretty good, but they would, they were coming from across the country and it was seriously, it was like a Grapes of Wrath style invasion. <laughs> and uh, I'm not kidding. And then it was such a joke to my band, The Screaming Sirens, that we'd, we'd be on tour with another band like we toured a lot with bands that we liked. Like, for example, we toured with TSOL constantly. Sure. They all loved us. We all loved them. You know what I mean? Same with Social Distortion. We did a bunch of shows with them. Um, you know, because we, we would party together. And sure. then, you know, all bands had touring vehicles. We all knew each other. You know, it was just great. So anyhow, um, but we were sitting around in a dressing room somewhere playing the special Scream and Sirens game. But at that point, we knew TSOL so well. We didn't hide it from them. Sometimes we'd What hide- was the special Scream and Sirens I'm going to tell you it. Okay. But sometimes we would hide our Scream and Sirens behavior, which was 
that we were way worse pigs than any fucking dude band ever. <laughs> way, way worse. Way worse. Like, like, I mean, at least that we saw and we would always be spying on them. And we know that like a lot of the guys were on their best behavior. But since we were on tours with a lot of guys, we saw them when they were at their worst. But I'm telling you, we were we were way worse than any male band. Right. Like just horrifyingly sexist. Like we had pass around boys. We, you know, we would like we would like turn people down. I used to like handcuff guys to the stage and like while in the middle of our set, I used to bite buttons off guys' shirts and spit them out like a machine gun. We would kick them to the curb if they weren't fun. We'd be like, get out of the van right now. Like just no, you know. But so so my favorite game that we were playing that we, we didn't hide this shit from TSOL after a while was we'd be looking in the back of BAM magazine or any like LA news, you know, rock and roll paper or or whatever, LA Rock Review, whatever it was, or BAM magazine. And we'd say all the ads for all the ads for hair metal brands. And I was one that started this. And all the other girls would be clustering on it. I'd be like, yes, no, no, no way. Not ever. <laughs> yes, maybe. And then someone else would go, okay, no, no, no. Maybe if I was really fucked up, yes, no, totally. And then this would go on and on. And finally, like, Joe Wood and Mike Roach from TSO looked up and went, what the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> and I was like, we're looking at the members of, of hair metal bands and we're saying yes or no as would we fuck them? Would we never fuck them? Would we, you know? And they're like, really? And, and I was like, yeah. And they were like, and they were just looking at us with their mouths open in right. horror, you know? But so then a few tour dates later, I don't even remember where we were. We might have been in like Arizona or New Mexico or somewhere. <laughs> it was it was like Mitch and, and Joe. And and then like that we were hanging around in the dressing room and they're like, hey, pleasant. And I was like, what? And they're like, yes, yes, no. No way. Yes, yes. And it would be to like they were a doing picture it with of the, the screaming the, of, sirens. No, of the guys. Of guys. They were they were doing it to her metal band. Too. That's funny. But like if they were a woman, you know what I yeah. mean? But they but they were totally they were both playing you know, it when we walked TSOL in. TSOL then became a hair metal band. Yes. But we used to <clears throat> no, but they weren't hair metal like the other people. I mean they were they were but they also were, uh they were uh, different. Also we used to we He wasn't um Jack had left the band. He wasn't yeah, part of the was, hair metal thing. No, this was Joe Wood. Yeah. But it was before it even went metal. It was still very very punky. And also, I mean, like all the time with my band The Sirens because why not? Like like bands that we were friends with and playing with, there was always people that were getting, you know, amorous with each other in between all the bands because it, you know, so it's male and female, it just, it same vocation. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like workplace romances. Exactly. But, but we ran the workplace, so nobody got fired. Yeah. But we did have a, a law in the Screaming Sirens van that you couldn't fuck one of our roadies. Do you know what I mean? That but, makes sense. But even that got broken. Of course. Um, not the well, yeah, of course. It got it got broken um, with one of them, but um, I was I was at a point one time when when we'd be on long drives, I was like actually making and embroidering little Girl Scout fake Girl Scout patches for our band, and one of them was like it was like no mushrooms, meaning no mushrooms on stage, and so right. there was a mushroom with a circle with a line around it, and then there was there was this one chair in our van that we called <laughs> we called the repulsive chair which was the very front window because it had a sliding window, but that was where we made everyone sit because if you puked out of it, it would just go right out that window because the other ones right. had vents. So the yeah. repulsive chair, 
So there was also, there was a repulsive chair, like <clears throat> honor badge, if you puked at it a few times. And then actually puke from all of our band had ratted off like a bit of the paint going backwards from like the aerodynamics of a of, of, of band God. going down the freeway. Um, but the other, but the other um, really popular um, merit badge was um, it was just called "We Love the Road Crew," meaning that someone had fucked one of our roadies. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm shaking my head right now. Now, yeah, Charlie's okay, but, but, totally shaking his head. And I gotta but, say that my my current boyfriend, who shall remain nameless and who is very patient, <laughs> always like if I start talking about the past, he just rolls his eyes and goes, "God only knows." <laughs> see, I would eat that shit up. I mean, I understand, but yeah, I love it. But do you, were you around when, did you ever hang out with Guns N' Roses in the early days? Yeah, we played with them a few times. And then we, um, Duff was the one that I mostly hung out with because um, he I was, came from punk rock. Yeah, he came from punk rock. And also I was friends with all the lame flames, which included my publisher of, of all my books, Iris Berry yeah. and Mandy and, um, Mandy wound up like being, being with Duff okay. for, for ages. So like, and Duff was always at disgrace on the other ones weren't, um, you know, Axel was kind of in his own weird autistic world. Yeah. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but, um, I heard a story once Rollins said that, uh, somehow he went to some benefit show and it was fishbone and the jerks and somehow guns and roses opened. And he said he was standing there with somebody, I don't remember who, and he said, they come on stage in their top hats and everything. He's like, we're ready to laugh at these clowns. Yeah. And he goes, as soon as they started playing, we weren't laughing. He said, that band scared every, he's like, they, they were, were like great. a wolf in sheep's clothing. They come up looking like poison or something like that. And he said, they were legit scary. No, they were good. They were great. We, yeah. we played with them a few times and, and people were like, you were on a, a, you know, on a gig with Guns N' Roses and, like, yes, we opened for them, but then also, like, you know, like, I think we were on bills above them at certain points. And, yeah. and you, everyone just has to understand. You guys that were was, huge. Was I remember going that on at point, the time. that period in time. I used to hear about your band all the time. Wait, there's a dog fight going on in here. <laughs> we don't have to edit it out. But in case you hear some craziness going on, um, we should probably wrap this up pretty soon, Charlie. Okay, last question. Okay. Do you still feel a connection to the city? Oh, my God, totally. Yes, I do. But also, sometimes I feel like it's a connection where um, I'm not Joan Crawford or Betty Davis, but I'm taking care of one or the other of them. And, and, I get and, that. You know, because L.A., has, especially since the end of, I mean, well, since the end of the pandemic, not that it's ended, but since the pandemic, it, it, it declined so much farther that one of my favorite and i say this in a macabre way hobbies is watching tourists come here because now that things have opened up people come and they think they're going to see beautiful amazing hollywood yeah and their mouths just drop open because it looks like i mean there's parts of like the major thoroughfares here that are just for miles homeless encampments and I there's garbage everywhere and tweakers everywhere yeah when we we go on tour they'd be like "Ooh, hollywood i'm like nah man you do not you don't get it it is like fucking mad max it's like that's exactly how i do i have to, uh, my stock description of it yeah. i say 
It's exactly like any Mad Max movie, except without the bitchin' flying machines and the cool costumes and way more horrible bad meth. Yeah, and I mean, legit, like on Hollywood Boulevard, the, the Walk of Fame, there are l- literally shootings every night. I mean, I can't, my own personal experiences, my own scary personal experiences, I can't begin to enumerate. Hollywood is no joke. Like, it's not what people think it is. Not even remotely. No, I know. License, license clattering here. Noises. Yeah. We have some dogs, and we would be interviewing them if they could talk, because they've seen a lot as Charlie's dogs. Yeah, yes. But, um, yeah, Hollywood Hollywood is bad. And so you I re- still love it. I still love it. I can't. There's there's something about Hollywood that's like very addictive to me. I have not been able to. I fantasize about leaving L.A. all the time. And actually, when I interviewed Ace Von Johnson. Good friend. Yeah. Good dude. Yeah. I, like, I love him. Actually, I love him a lot. But he, I was saying, like, I was all fascinated. How did you go to Nashville? And I know people that live in Nashville. But, I mean, like, it was more how did you tear yourself away from Hollywood? Because I feel like. I feel he's, like not, he's not from here. No, I know, but I mean, still, he was here for like yeah. a good heyday, but I'm not from here either. I was born on the East Coast and yeah. didn't come here until I was 15, but I feel sometimes like I'm in an abusive relationship yeah. with Hollywood. Yeah, 100%. I get that, but there's something about this city. The first time I saw Once, once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I yeah. saw it at uh, the New Beverly Tarantino's Theater, and I'm driving home on the 101, and I'm seeing the skyline of downtown. Yeah. And I just all these memories of my life in this city sort of flooding back to me. And I started thinking how one in a million and fortunate I was that I've gotten to live this life in this city, even with the bad shit. That's you know exactly I mean? me, too. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, L.A. is very, very special. Yeah. It's got, it's got, and especially Hollywood has its own fucking energy. I know you don't believe in this, but. Hollywood is haunted as fuck, and you, I, I can feel it everywhere. Like, and and so much of the city, it's just like you, you can sense the presence of. I think that the wildest energy in Hollywood, and I'm saying that kind of as like a lot of Los Angeles at large, is it was such a mecca for people to come. People had so much hope coming here. Like, you know, when movies first started during mm-hmm. the Depression, because there was the Dust Bowl. Um, afterwards to be, uh, you know, to be starlets or movie hopefuls. And then after World War II, because it was a great place to settle if you lived in like, you know, Minnesota or somewhere yeah. and you had GI money and you could move out to where it was sunny and the ocean was right there. People had so much hope coming out here. And then so much of it got dashed away and there was so much despair and craziness that that whole mix of that, I, it's to me, it's just palpable. And it's a city of broken hearts for sure. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. It's broken hearts, broken dreams, boulevard of broken dreams, but it's always got that, that beautiful pink light at sunset. Yeah. It's got, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a magical place, but like anything magical, there's a good side and there's a bad side. A hundred percent. Anyway, we should probably wrap up here. You okay. think on that, do you, do on that your, Hollywood uh, note? Do your epilogue. My epilogue. I, I just gave an epilogue for Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, my guest today was the wondrous Charlie Paulson, and we could probably talk for hours. And um, you'll be able to find him by finding all of his social media stuff in the, in the description of this episode. And um, I love you, Charlie. Thank you for being on here. PG, thank you. This was a, a one once in a lifetime. Thank you so much. 
And thank you guys to all listening. And I'll, I'll see you, or at least I'll be talking at you and imagining your faces um, on the next episode. Mwah! Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.